0: Amen. And kids up through fifth grade, you're dismissed to go to your classrooms. For the rest of you, please turn within your Bible to the book of James, chapter 5. We'll be in verses 9 to 12 this morning. That's James chapter 5 as we continue on in our study of the book of James. Thanks so much to Christopher for leading us in communion this morning. I uh, really appreciate that, uh, just that uh, reminder that it's a continual confession as after you, he said that. I uh, found myself getting a little emotional as you guys were coming up and just um, as we came forward together as a church and each person took the cup and the bread as a confession you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? And so I'm getting emotional saying, there's the McCorkle family confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, all like five McCorkle families we have in this church. There's the Underwood family confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the Friend family confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's all these Hummer confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and on and on and on. And um, just a reminder that that gospel is what knits our church together. The gospel is what knits us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not a church that gathers here because we all all happen to like this style of worship music or like the preaching or the whatever you know it's, the, it's g- the gospel it's Jesus Christ it's that continual confession that we make and so communion is a time to remember and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we do that as a body, corporately. And uh, anyway, so I was just getting a little emotional about that, and then just thinking, too, about this, this capital campaign that's coming up, and just, I'm not worried about it. If God stirs in our hearts to be generous, to give to this, then God's going to provide, and Jesus Christ will be Lord. And if God doesn't stir in our hearts to be generous and give to this, and we aren't able to go forward with it, Jesus Christ is still going to be Lord, and we're going to still be knit together. And uh, it's just, just, man, anyways, let's... I'm, Whew, getting a little emotional this morning, but it's good. Also, speaking of generous giving, I forgot to mention earlier, but uh, we had talked about um, the opportunity to give to the Rusus, our missionary partners who are housing Ukrainian refugees. And as a church, we were able to give over $5,300 to the Rusus for, uh, to provide for them. So praise the Lord for that. Yeah, that's awesome. And thank you for your generosity in that, and that's just, again, it's it's just being part of the kingdom, and it is a blessing to be a part of God's global kingdom as a part of that in the local church here, so praise the Lord for that. Like I said, we're going to be in James chapter 5 this morning, talking about what do you do in hard times, how do you live your life when that kind of pressure cooker of suffering uh, gets cranked up. So before we do that, uh, as you're turning there or tapping there, uh, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. The stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. Hallelujah. God, be praised. Jesus was risen from the grave. God, if that historical event did not happen almost 2,000 years ago, then all that we would be doing here is for, for nothing. It's moot. We would be the most to be pitied as the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus Christ had not been raised, but Jesus has been raised. He is the King of kings, a name above all names. So we praise you for that, God. We thank you. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to proclaim and remember Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. the taking of the Lord's Supper together. And now as we turn to your word, we just ask that you do a mighty work in us, in our hearts. Help us to see what you have us to see. Give me humility as I preach. Guard my words. May you be glorified in all that is said in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's almost it's always uh, it's always dangerous to try to quote. A stand-up comedian in your sermon because uh, you're just inevitably going to butcher it. They're the professional, and so. But anyways, there's a, there's something that we uh, we uh, quote all the time as staff. They're going to appreciate this. They didn't know I was going to say this. We quote this all the time in our office, and it, it goes perfectly uh, with what we're talking about this morning. There's a comedian named Tim Hawkins. Some of you are familiar with him, Christian stand-up comedian, and and he t- tells a story of taking his daughter to the mall to meet her friends, his teenage daughter, and they show up to meet her friends at the mall and they're gonna drop her off and uh, her friends aren't there. And so they're waiting waiting, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes go by and the daughter's just getting more and more frustrated. Finally, she just exclaims from the back seat, ugh, this is the worst, I'm waiting for your friends. And this was, I get, the, and so Tim, uh, Her father had, uh, I guess this was at the time when, you remember that story when the Chilean miners were like stuck in that mine for days on end. And so he said, you know what, you're right. He said, there's these miners in Chile and they're stuck down in this mine right now. They don't haven't had any food, they don't have any water, they don't know if they're ever gonna get out or if they're gonna die down there. And I'm sure as they're sitting down there, they're saying to one another, man, this really is the worst, being stuck down here. The only thing I can think of that would be worse then this situation we're in right now is if we went to the mall and our friends were running like 10 or 15 minutes late, I'm so glad that that's not happening, right? He says it way better than I, do. I butchered it, but the point is, as human beings, we don't respond well to even like the slightest inconveniences, right? Like, like I'm talking about the most minor suffering that you can possibly imagine. In fact, I would say probably 50% of what I would call Emily's in my uh, marriage moments, you know what I'm talking about. Probably 50% of those could be solved if we just took a pause, ate a snack, and then came back together... <laughs> and weren't hangry with each other anymore. My wife is, uh, she's home with our sick son right now and um, yeah, she's uh, probably saying amen. This is one of those sermons where I was really uh, convicted as I was preparing it because I have failed in many of these ways this week. So um, anyways, we as people don't do a very good job of responding, responding to like the smallest amount of suffering here. And so I'm making an argument from lesser to greater here if that we don't respond to small persecution and suffering very well how will we respond when like we go through actual suffering and actual persecution that's what our passage is about this morning last week james james gave us this really incredible encouragement to persevere through trials remember we said the whole point of the sermon last week the world is messed up but jesus is coming back amen and praise the Lord for that. And we say, so just like the farmer can't do anything to make it rain, the rain that needs to come to make the crops go grow is an act of God. There's nothing that we can do other than pray to make the rain come. God needs to send the rain. In the same way, there's nothing that we can do to make Jesus come back to fix everything. It is an act of God. All we can do is pray and wait patiently like a farmer waiting for The rain. Now, James is aware that sometimes when you go through persecution and suffering, like the church that he's writing to is, at the hands of the people, the unrighteous rich that we talked about several weeks ago, when you go through those kinds of stressful situations, it can lead to doing and saying things that you wouldn't otherwise do if you weren't in a, that kind of situation this morning. And so the question for us is this, is simply, how do you live in hard times? How do you live when that, like we said, the pressure cooker of suffering and stress and persecution comes? When those things happen, how do you do you live? None of us are facing the kind of persecution for our faith that the early church was that James was writing to. Some people in the world are right now, but none of us are. But we all certainly face difficulty and we all suffer in different ways and we all want to be ready if, in fact, that kind of persecution does come. So the question is how do you handle that? I really have three questions that we see in our text this morning. The first one is this Do you grumble against your brothers and sisters in Christ? You grumble against them. That comes straight from verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So the persecution was coming for the church by in the hands of the unrighteous rich who were just steamrolling uh, those who were in their path. They were cheating and defrauding them. They were even persecuting and killing the righteous man we saw at the end of verse 6. That's where the persecution was coming from. Yet what was happening was as the believers were facing that kind of outside pressure and persecution they were starting to turn on each other. It's almost like James is saying, like, yo, you guys are on the same team. Like stop fighting against each other. It's like how many raise your hand if you've watched just way too much basketball the last 4 days. Some of you are yeah, there's some decent amount of hands in here. It's like when you're watching a basketball game and uh, there's two guys on the same team going up for a rebound and nobody from the other team is even in sight. Two guys go up for a rebound and they what do they, do? they bang into each other and the ball goes out of bounds. The other team gets like, "What are you doing? You're on the same team." Right, it's the same kind of thing that James is talking about. Here, don't grumble against your brothers and sisters. When you face that kind of persecution and suffering from outside, don't allow that to make you turn inward and fight against one another. You're on the same team. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, too often, when things get difficult, we end up grumbling and complaining about each other behind each other's backs. When the pressure gets ramped up, we have that tendency to get snippy, right? Take out our frustration on one another to be careless with our words, and that same thing happens on a small scale and on a large scale when you face different difficult situations in life. And that can cause us to speak carelessly and hurtfully about the very same people who we are, our brothers, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. When pressure gets ramped up from the outside, we can turn on one another. Now, obviously, I'm speaking theoretically. Here, right? we can't know for sure if this was the case. Like, if only there was some sort of massive global event that happened in the last couple of years that would, like, reasonable people could have disagreed on what you should do in response, and it affected everyone and it made life really hard for everyone. Like, if only something like that happened, then we'd be able to tell if we really were grumbling against one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh wait, I'm getting something here. Turns out there was something that happened. Right? How'd you do? <laughs> Raise your hand if you feel good about every word you said about other believers in Christ when we were trying to figure out what to do through COVID. I don't think a single hand in here should be raised. We all spoke carelessly, without mercy, without compassion, without grace, without understanding. If they disagree with me, how could they, right? We all did that. We're all guilty of that. And that's what happens when the pressure gets ramped up. I think we'd all like to think that if, like, a large-scale persecution ever came, right, like I'm talking, like, North Korea-style persecution ever came, we all like to think that the church would stand up and be united and be able to face it, no problem, and yet if we can't do well on kind of a smaller-scale suffering, why would we think that we'd do any better on a larger-scale suffering? If we're a church that grumbles against one another, whenever, like, the slightest thing happens, I don't think it's going to get any better, the harder things get. James doesn't just say don't grumble against each other. He gives the motivation for avoiding grumbling and complaining about other believers. He says this, so that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, the clear implication here is that Jesus is near and he is not pleased by this kind of behavior. Now, believe it or not, we have five-year-old son named Owen, as many of you know, and there are, have been times that he has actually disobeyed things that I've told him to do or that his mom has told him to do. I know, it's shocking, but it's true. And there's actually times recently where I, like I'm in one room and Emily's telling him to do something in the other room and it's not going well and he's loudly complaining and Emily will say this, she'll say, Owen, oh, you know your dad can hear you, right? <laughs> like the dreaded words. So I know that's my cue. Okay, I better pipe in here and see what's going on. So, Owen, what's happening? And Owen's response is uh, funny. Usually he will say something like this. He'll say, stop listening to me. <laughs> he's not denying that he's disobeying. He's just saying, I don't want you to hear me disobeying. I want to keep disobeying without the consequences that are gonna come from me disobeying? Is that not the perfect thing response of what happens in every single one of our hearts when we disobey? The judge is standing at the door. He's about to turn the handle and walk in. He hears it, he's nearby, that's what James is saying and he hears it in our hearts. We wanna be like, Jesus stop listening to me. (laughs) I want to say what I'm going to say. I want to grumble. I want to complain. I want to do what I want to do. But just please don't listen to me because I don't want you to hear what I'm saying. But we need to remember that the judge hears it and he doesn't. He's not pleased by it. Now, we're not talking about losing our salvation, right? We need to be clear when talking about being judged. By it. it's not, he's not talking about losing your salvation any more than Owen is in danger of not being my son uh, when we have those kinds of episodes, right? We're in, if you're in Christ, you're new creation, and he holds you. His, sleep, his sheep hear his voice, and they know his knows their name. That's not what we're talking about. But also, when we have those episodes at our home, there's not peace in our home anymore. And I'm certainly not happy with what's going on. And when the churches, if we're grumbling and complaining against one another, there's not going to be peace in our home. And Jesus is not going to be pleased. I don't think this is something that I'm not uh, preaching this because this is like Something that is, happens all the time, at least I don't necessarily hear it, it's, but sometimes it does, and we need to make sure it's just so easy to slip into that, right? Without even thinking about it, without even being conscious of it. Well, they're wrong, and I'm going to complain about them. We just need to be conscious, conscious and remember. The judge hears, and he doesn't like it when we grumble and complain against one another, even if the person that you're tempted to grumble and complain about is really being a bozo, right? There's no, like, card that says if they're really being a bozo, then you can say whatever you want about them. Sometimes they are being a bozo. Sometimes your pastor can be a bozo. Pastor Jerry I'm talking about, of course. (laughs) Just kidding. Doesn't excuse and cruel towards the very people you're called to love and and encourage and walk alongside. You've got to say a hard thing. You say it to the person's face and you speak the truth in love. We don't complain about one another behind each other's backs. We don't grumble about each other. So that's the first question because that's really hard. When the pressure of life starts ramping up, it's easy. It's so easy to have that pressure release valve be, I'm just going to say what's on my heart and what's on my mind and, and really bash other people that I'm called to love. James says don't do that. Don't grumble against your brothers and sisters because the judge is standing at the door and he's about to turn that handle and he hears and he sees. That's the first question we need to ask. Here's the second question. Do you suffer patiently? Do you suffer patiently? What James does now is he actually turns to two examples of people who have suffered well. He talks about the prophets in general and then he talks about Job in particular. So first he talks about the prophets. Look at verse 10. See the example of the prophets. It says this, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He uses the prophets as an example because they all ended up suffering for speaking the message of God to a culture that didn't want to hear it. So you see that? So they, uh, God gave them a message and they were faithful in carrying out that message. And because of their faithfulness, they suffered. Sometimes you're called to suffer for doing good. You can go to that next slide, Chris. Sometimes we're called to suffer for doing what's right. And we talked about this in the, in, when we talked about 1 Peter. God calls us sometimes to suffer for doing good. And if you suffer for doing bad... We shouldn't take that as the fact that we're being persecuted. If if you're suffering because you're being a real jerk, then that's not what we're talking about. But if you're suffering for doing good, sometimes God calls you to do that. You might have to suffer consequences because of your faithfulness to obey God. And the prophets had to suffer consequences because of their faithfulness to obey God. And we can all relate to the things that they had to suffer for their faithfulness. For example, raise your hand if you've ever been uh, experienced like a mob stoning you, right? Like you say something and then a whole angry crowd like picks up rocks and just starts chucking them at your head to try to kill you, right? Raise your hand if I, some of you have certainly, uh, nobody's gone through that, Okay. Uh, killed with a sword, right? Somebody who's mad at you for what you're saying, and so they killed you with a sword. Any, nobody has ever had that. Okay, what, this one's certainly somebody who's been uh, sawn in half because they were uh, faithful to proclaim the message of Jesus. Nobody, okay. That's the kind of suffering that the prophets went through. Book of Hebrews chapter 13 tells us all those things happened because the prophets were faithful to carry out the message. Isaiah was literally cut in half. It wasn't a magic trick. <laughs> he was literally sawn in half, Because he was faithful to share the message that God had for him. None of us are in any danger, most likely, of going through those things. But you might have to suffer for doing good. And if the prophets can be faithful to experience that kind of suffering, church, can we be faithful to experience suffering on a lesser degree? Because we're committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's another example that he gives, which I love this example. It's the example of Job as an example of faithful suffering. You look at verse 11. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I love this. You're probably familiar with the story of Job, right? Job was a faithful man, and he was blessed with material possessions. He had a great family. He had great friends, and he was in great health. And we see like this behind-the-scenes conversation in heaven where God and the enemy are talking about Job, and the enemy will ask God for permission to test Job, and so God tests Job, and one by one, he takes away all these things. He takes away his material possessions. He takes away his family. He takes away his health, and in the end, his friends even are trying to make things better, but they end up making things worse. I love that James uses Job as a positive example of faithfulness and suffering, because guess what? Job complained a lot. You read the book of Job. He complained. <laughs> he didn't just take it in stride and never say anything about it and say, "Yeah, it's not a big deal. It hurt him. He was feeling it deeply. And yet he did not lose his steadfastness. He did not lose his trust in the Lord. In fact, he says in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. He was experiencing this unimaginable hardship and yet he knew he was going to see God and it was going to make it all worth it this idea of biblical lament. And God made us with feelings and emotions, right? And that's okay. That's a good thing. Now, sometimes those feelings and emotions can't be trusted, especially when you haven't eaten in a few hours, right? But sometimes they can. And we don't need to just put them away like robots, God tells us we can come to him. We say, when you're going through suffering, we see this over and over in scripture. Like, how long, oh Lord, how long am I going to go through this? How long are the wicked going to trample over me? Have you forgotten me, God? Do you not see me? My tears are my food. I cry out to you, and you don't hear me. You're ignoring me. We can come to God with the deepest feelings of angst and frustration in our hearts, but then there's a turn. We say, even though this is true, yet I will trust you. Even though this feels like you've forgotten me, God, yet I still trust in the goodness of God, and I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I'm going to see him with my own eyes. And when I see him, everything's going to be worth it. Every suffering, every persecution, every difficulty I've ever had to walk through is going to be worth it when I get to the end and I see Jesus face to face. Job is an example to us of faithful suffering through persecution and hardship and enduring in his faith. And he complained a little bit. And that's okay, but we don't ever lose our fundamental belief in the goodness and steadfastness and graciousness of our God. So when life's hard, you don't have to pretend that it's not. Steadfastness doesn't mean, again, just shutting off your emotions and becoming robots. It doesn't mean coldness. It means faithfulness in the middle of pain. And we can look to Job to remember that even when that doesn't feel good, God is still faithful no matter what. Amen? So do you grumble against your brothers and sisters? Do you suffer patiently? And then finally, do you speak with integrity? Do you speak with integrity? Verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So James encourages us to suffer patiently by using the example of the prophets. And then all of a sudden it feels like he's taking like a 90 degree turn and he starts talking about swearing oaths. And at first it seems like this is completely out of the blue. Like, okay, where did this come from? Why is this above all don't swear an oath, right? Like, did he just forget to put this in the first draft of James and then he kind of tossed it in there because he re- remembered he wanted to say that? Seems a little bit out of the blue, but, but the truth is, all these things are related. As we talk about how do we live and respond in the pressure cooker of suffering, when those trials come, it's easy to start grumbling, it's easy to lose patience, and it's easy to start speaking flippantly and not having integrity in the things that you say. So the main point he's making here when he talks about don't swear an oath He's not necessarily about the oath. It's about what he says right after. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He wants to make sure that even in the middle of suffering, the people of Christ are people who speak with integrity. Now, integrity of speech, being honest about what you're saying, was not necessarily very common back then. You could argue it's not necessarily very common today. And so this idea of swearing oaths, what would happen was people would say something, that they would agree to something or whatever, but then say, oh, but I didn't swear by the temple. Or, yeah, I swore by the temple, but I didn't swear by, like, the door of the temple. or whatever. It's, honestly, it was very immature. It was like the, uh, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a kid holding their fingers behind their backs with their finger crossed. So like, I, I don't have to do that because my fingers were crossed when I promised. And so, what James is saying is, we shouldn't have to be a people who swear by oaths when we say we're going to do something. You should just do it. When you say yes, it should mean yes. When you say no, it should mean no. It's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king or do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. So you can see people would swear by all these things. I swear by Jerusalem that I'll do this. He's just saying don't do that. He says let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. That's the kind of people we need to be, church. People who, when they say yes, it means yes. And when they say no, it means no. We shouldn't have to swear that we're telling the truth because when we say something, people should know that it's true. This is so important for us as Christians. Why is that? Why is this such a big deal? that Jesus talks about it and James talks about it. It's because we hold the keys to the kingdom. We, as the church, are the ones that God has entrusted with the message of the gospel. We're the ones who are tasked with telling our neighbors and telling the nations about the good news of Jesus Christ. And why on earth would someone believe you when you tell them the good news of Jesus Christ if last week you just ripped them off on a business deal by being a little bit untruthful? They wouldn't, right? They shouldn't. Is why it's so crucial to be men and women of integrity, even in and especially in times of persecution and suffering. I'm not saying that you need to be perfect to share your faith. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, the fact that we're not perfect opens the door for us to share our faith. Man, if you only knew how good, how great of a sinner I am. What Jesus did in my heart, I know He can do it in yours. That's that's your testimony. That's the gospel. You don't need to be perfect to share your faith, but what I'm saying is we need to be people of integrity because no one's going to take counsel from a charlatan and no one's going to get help from a hypocrite. In fact, in a way, that's what all of this is about. We can't be people who respond to persecution and suffering like the rest of the world. If we want people to know that there's something different about following Jesus, then we need to live like there's something different about following Jesus. And persecution and hard times come. And you might get an opportunity to share your faith when you live your life like that. You might have somebody, a non-believer, come up to you and say, you know what? I've noticed you never have a bad word to say about anybody. <laughs> Why is that? You know what? I've noticed that you never lose your patience even when things are getting really, really hard. Why is that? You know, I've noticed... Whenever you say you're going to do something, you always do it. Even if no one else would have noticed, you always do it. Why is that? You might get that opportunity. And when somebody says that to you, church, you better not say, well, because that's just how I was raised. It's just the right thing to do. Nope. I'm going to be mad if I hear that you say that in response to that unbelievable opportunity to say, no, it's because Jesus changed my heart. Because I have this amazing Savior, and I'd love to tell you about it. Amen? People of integrity, people who suffer patiently, people who don't grumble against one another, it's going to just roll out the red carpet for an opportunity to share the good news about our Savior who's rescued us church let's live lives in hard times that reflect the gospel the beautiful reality that while we were yet sinners christ died for us and let's live in such a way that gives us the opportunity to be a light in a dark world and a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and let's bring glory to our savior in everything we do amen amen let's pray heavenly father we thank you again for the gospel While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Rarely will someone die for even a good person, but you demonstrated your love for us, and that while we were enemies, mortal, bitter enemies, because you were on the throne and we wanted to be on the throne, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and we praise you for that, God. So maybe we live lives, even in suffering, even in hard times. Lord, I know many in this room who are walking through and have walked through really, really hard things. And in many ways, we've fallen short of the way that you've called us to live. And we thank you that we can know that you have mercy and grace and compassion, like you say in this passage, for those times. But help us, God, to be people who live lives. We don't grumble against each other. We don't lose our patience. We speak with integrity. Our yes means yes and our no means no. Again, not just because that's the right thing to do, but because we have an amazing Savior. We want to reflect him in every way that we can. We thank you for that Savior. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.